All right. Okay. All right. Here's the scenario. Your rider gets the call up to a race. No team duties, basically a free ride. They're in great aerobic condition from a strong general preparation phase, nailing all of the benchmarks needed to be competitive, but the clock's ticking. Because when you hit the race's website to start mapping out the stages, the countdown timer says 19 days, 23 hours, 26 minutes, and 13 seconds to be race ready. What do you do to get them race ready? Yo-ho, and welcome back to Ride Better, Faster, a show about cycling training and racing. I'm Damien Roos. Today, we go inside the steps I took to get this rider race ready. It's a look at my coaching process, like how to determine race demands and fitness targets. It's also a look at the balance between the glycolytic and aerobic systems and how I structure interval sessions. 19 days. A little under three weeks, not much time to get some real work done and recovered from, but plenty of time to do some fitness fine tuning. So on this show, we're going to go over the steps I followed to get the training sessions lined up with the athlete's goals. And while it's a lot of work, it's my bread and butter coaching work. Sure, I could have dragged over a couple of my go-to sessions and called it a day, but that's not really how I roll. And plus, this was a good opportunity to revisit my fundamentals and primary sources of information to make sure I'm doing the best by the athlete. All told, I probably put in 10 hours into the plan, and I'll probably do another 10 hours before they reach the start line. Part of this was spent on contextual variables like cycling racing demands, current power profile, athlete psychological state, long-term adaptions, stage demands, periodization phase, season plan. Then after that, I got into the actual content of the training, which has to be matched to the desired physiological objectives. So choosing the metabolism involved, amount of neuromuscular load, integration of specific skills, cognitive load, volume, and intensity. And that sounds like a lot to consider, and it is. But not all of these elements need a thorough investigation, and not all of these are in the control of athletes or coaches. So it's just a case of recognizing this and moving on to things you can control, like current fitness, which I've got a good grasp of from my discipline-specific benchmarks and other sexy metrics like FRC and VLA max, and a classic strengths and weaknesses power profile. These all combine to give me an idea of what durations along the power curve need work. Then it's a matter of ticking off the things on the list that I can easily gather information on. For example, to get an idea of the athlete's headspace about their own performance, I simply ask them what they think they're missing. I also ask them what stage they'd like to target for the win. We both came to the same general conclusions, but I still have more to do to understand what shifts are needed from the athlete's current performance traits to perform well at this race. To do this, we need to define a goal and define the base requirements physiologically to achieve it. This comes down to understanding the performance requirements of the race and stages. In general aerobic terms, the volume and aerobic capacity work is already done. The benchmarks for this have been reached and the shift in the next short block of work moves to aerobic maintenance. What's left to figure out is the non-aerobic power durations that need work. I start this process of modeling the basic requirements to achieve the goal by building a route on Strava for each stage of the race and a separate route isolating key features in each stage of the race. After this, I could see the Strava segments attached to these stages, then begin working through these looking to see if the course or segments have been raced before, 
If it has been raced, I sift through the KOM to get the watts per kilogram for the climbs from known riders. It doesn't stop there though. If you can isolate a couple of riders that you know their weight and approximate FTP, you're able to see their power leading into key climbs and then examine the KOM itself to see how that power was generated, mostly looking for the variability of the effort. All of this effort is to get an idea of the specific power duration requirements for key moments of the race, the day-to-day -day demands of the stages, and the demands of the race as a whole. And other than setting power targets for benchmarking and race simulations, this information helps me manage and model fitness and fatigue in the lead-up to the race, so the athlete hits their target stage with optimal fitness and fatigue levels. And out of all of this, the main thing I isolated is the targeted stage, and it's a hilltop finish, and the last five kilometers is the key moment. My first training goal is to create a fatigued state simulation, basically replicating the amount of fatigue before the final effort and then completing a similar race finishing effort. Let's go through how I got my final numbers for this race sim. There's a KOM for the final climb, which we can see the fastest times on Strava. Then if I go to pro cycling stats, I can see if anyone that finished in the lead group put their ride onto Strava. The answer is yes, but they didn't supply their power. Don't. I keep going down the KOM list to find riders and I find a rider that was approximately 10 seconds down at the end, but rode the climb slower. I know this rider's weight and approximate FTP, so they'll have to do. I checked the power on this KOM. I also checked their power curve during that day. From this investigation, I can see on the climb they rode fairly steady. And hunting around for a video of the stage shows the exact same thing, except for a sprint at the end from the leaders. Now getting power targets here is a little tricky. The climb finishes at 1800 meters, so an unacclimated athlete might be down as much as 12% on their normal power. So my estimate is 5.6 watts per kilogram for the final 15 minutes. That fits in nicely to a completed benchmark I have, which is 20 minutes at 5.5 to 5.8 watts per kilogram after 3000 kilojoules, a positive sign for the athlete's confidence. From this information, I create a truncated stage simulation with a fatigued 15 minute effort at 5.7 watts per kilogram after 2,500 to 3000 kilojoules. We'll know if they're on target after that session. There's some risk here that they are not on target, in which case there's no time to turn it around, but we need to test the legs and get the effort into their body and mind. Now that process is quite smooth, especially compared to the next part where things get a little wonky, because we also need to prepare this rider for the nature of racing. And here's where I start to think about all three energy systems. I've already mentioned the great general condition the rider is in, and this means that they've built a large aerobic engine, but their above threshold capacity is low, where they currently have limiters in the shorter efforts and sprints. They need some capacity to generate power over shorter durations, and perhaps a sprint or two. So the rest of their training time is dedicated to this. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the delicate balance between these systems. An important consideration when working out how big we want the above threshold or the anaerobic system to be. And to be honest, I don't want to mess this up too much by doing a whole bunch of short efforts and then bringing down their threshold by a lot. Luckily, having a lot of historical data, I have a bit of an idea how this athlete responds to an increase in anaerobic work, and especially how much it will impact their aerobic power. But it's an important relationship between the glycolytic and the aerobic energy systems, and it impacts the approach to training. You might remember Victor Campanat's coach, Kurt Lobestel, talking about this relationship in a previous episode of the show. 
He calls this relationship controlling your VLA max, which is a useful way of framing it. The glycolytic system is the most trainable system and also makes the biggest contribution to anaerobic energy production. But the goal of training is not always to build the biggest system. And this is because of the relationship between the anaerobic and the aerobic systems. With a higher glycolytic power, or VLA max, comes a greater rate of pyruvate lactate production, which also means a higher rate of production of acidic hydrogen ions, even at powers below the maximum anaerobic power. This is a problem for many cycling disciplines because it means that for a certain aerobic capacity, if we increase the glycolytic power in order to improve anaerobic power and or capacity, the rate of lactate production exceeds the rate of lactate clearance at a lower power output. Or in other words, the lactate threshold goes down. And this means the proportion of your aerobic capacity that you're able to utilize for an extended duration decreases. The balance between these two capacities will dictate your lactate threshold. So you can see getting this balance right is an important thing to consider. Any training in these shorter durations should be used sparingly if the main priority is a high lactate threshold. And when I say sparingly, this is all relative, but the density of shorter efforts needs to be considered seriously and monitored continually. But we still haven't gotten to the ideal anaerobic size of this athlete in this scenario because as well as considering the size of the aerobic system when deciding how big the glycolytic power should be, we also need to consider the demands of the race. In particular, we need to decide how important a high FTP is relative to the ability to produce high power over short durations of seconds to minutes. The role within the team is just as important as all other considerations here. And let's work off the fact that this rider is free to ride hilly stages as they please. What short efforts do they need to perform well? And here's a bit from the coaching side of this strategy. I simply ask myself, how will they win? We've already isolated the longer term fatigue power watts per kilogram, but also, they require reasonable anaerobic power production to deal with race scenarios like making the selection on a pivotal climb by not fatiguing, able to respond to accelerations, attacks, or just out of corners. These types of efforts tend to be approximately 15 seconds at this level of racing and the ability to sprint at the end of long stages. In these examples, the threshold needs to be relatively high, but still leaving a bit of room for reasonable glycolytic power. And reasonable is the key word here. And really, who knows exactly what that is? There was a recent paper that has watts per kilogram benchmarks of five levels of kilojoules per kilogram of body weight. So power after 10 kilojoules per kilogram, 20 kilojoules per kilogram, all the way up to 50 kilojoules per kilogram. They used data from professional riders and took common power profile durations of 10 seconds, one minute, five minutes, and 20 minutes. And say we pick the one minute benchmark and compare it to where this rider sits, there's a gap of 1.44 watts per kilogram. And this could be due to no recent races or, or not recently riding hard while fatigued, but it gives me a starting point to figure out what to work towards. And I'll also be watching other metrics like VLA max and FRC and to see if any shifts occur after training here as well. Now, I recognize that this is all just pushing numbers around on a computer screen though. And all we really know is that they need to add some more power above threshold. And we'll see what that really means in the race. Mm -hmm. 
So all I know now is that we need to get more focused on the shorter efforts. So looking at the physiological adaption targets for the work we're going to do, we still need to consider aerobic, anaerobic, and neuromuscular adaptations. And the cool thing here is that we have some guidelines that can help us prescribe intervals. In 2013, Paul Larson and Martin Bruchette published a two-part review of high-intensity training in which they created an evidence-based framework that helps coaches use different interval modalities to target the three energy systems with precision. In this framework, Larson and Bouchette came up with five combinations that target these three systems with varying and increasing demands. Simply called type 1, type 2, type 3, type 4, type 5, interval sessions can be built where it has components of aerobic and neuromuscular or aerobic and anaerobic or aerobic, anaerobic and neuromuscular. Pretty cool, hey? I'd go through them now, but I'm sure that it doesn't make it clearer. So I'm going to go over these in the next section where it'll be easier to demonstrate. So now we get to the strategic decision of what sessions to prescribe. This process starts with prioritized adaptions, and we've done most of the hard work at looking at the race scenarios that the athlete needs to perform in to win. When it comes down to it, the key targets we are training with these intervals are to increase anaerobic, metabolic power and capacity, neuromuscular recruitment and economy, and max aerobic power. Now, the cool thing in the Larson and Bouchette framework is they worked out what of the four interval formats elicit adaptions in each of their five combinations. In other words, interval formats can be either short intervals, long intervals, repeated sprint training or sprint interval training, and each of these formats elicit different adaptions. So short intervals, which are considered to be 10 to 60 seconds of work with 10 to 60 seconds of rest, can train type 1, type 2 or type 3. Long intervals, 2 to 5 minutes with 1 to 4 minutes rest, can train type 3 and type 4. Repeated sprint training, 3 to 10 seconds work with 15 to 60 second rest can train type 4 and type 5. And sprint interval training, 20 to 30 seconds with 1 to 4 minutes rest can train type 5. I know it's a little confusing in audio, but there is a simple flowchart from Larson and Bruchette to help you find the best format for your desired outcome. Let's go through what I'm targeting to help make it clearer. So here are the three targets. Type 4 is the preferred type with high adaptations for all three systems, aerobic, anaerobic, and neuromuscular. There is a warning with type 4 intervals though. These hit all three energy systems at once and therefore are very fatiguing. So I'm going to supplement these with type 3 sessions in the overload week and type 3 targets high aerobic, high anaerobic, and low neuromuscular. I also want to add type 5 to the type 4s as I'd like to raise the shorter-term power before trying to extend the time that they can spend there. And this is done with sprint interval training, as type 5s target low aerobic, high anaerobic, and high neuromuscular. So basically, we're looking at short hit, long hit, and repeated sprint training formats linked to type 4, and long hit and short hit linked to type 3, and sprint interval training. Okay, we're getting there. We've got our targets, our interval types. Now we have to adjust the interval variables and manipulations of the interval before getting into the final session format. And it's important to remember when fine-tuning your session format, there is no magic workout. 
but there are some that work better than others. And this is why it's important to monitor athletes and work with a format that suits them to get the best out of them. Within all interval formats, there are many manipulations that can be made. Things like work intensity, work duration, rest intensity, rest duration, set duration, number of sets, between set recovery duration, between set recovery intensity, total volume, neuromuscular manipulations, work modality, environmental considerations, and nutritional status. A long list, but manageable with the right information, experience, and time, at least getting to the first session, because as Mike Tyson says, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. Let's go through an example. I'm going to start out with sprint interval training type 5, targeting high anaerobic and high neuromuscular power. I'm also picking these because I want to build power, push the power duration curve up, and then build capacity, pushing the power duration curve out to be able to hold this power longer after that. To confirm the choice of workout, I was also able to find a bunch of studies that showed favorable results for all-out 30-second efforts with healthy men, meh, and highly trained cyclists. Woohoo! We start with the most important manipulation, so work intensity, and this is a maximum effort interval, so there is no target, it's just all out. Work duration. Now, the intensity and duration of these are pretty straightforward because I use WKO5 and their optimized interval targets. So if my model is up to date, which it is, all I have to do is find the edge I want to train and use a rounded time. For example, if it's 44 seconds, then I can round it out to 45 or 50 seconds, then I go to the interval targeting dashboard and I pick out my intensity, which sits at around 92% of the power at this duration on their power duration curve. But as this is an all-out effort, I will only use this number for analyzing the efforts after the fact. If you don't use WKO or you want to use predefined durations, there are many options. And let's use short intervals as a guide. Short intervals are defined by work durations between 10 to 60 seconds and rest durations between the same 10 to 60 seconds, meaning there are lots of possible combinations such as 15-15, None of these short, high intensity interval formats are new. They've been used by cyclists and studied for decades. We've seen a resurgence in the 30-15 format after a recent study by Ronstadt. Interestingly, Ronstadt and his colleagues argue that the two-for-one work-to-recovery ratio seems to allow more time spent at 90% of VO2 max, and this might be in favor of formats such as 30-15, 40-20, 45-15, and 60-30. But as it stands, it's hard to get any real science on many of these formats. There simply is no available research to suggest which of the above methods are more efficient. There's a lot of recommendations from coaches to do this type of session over another, but in some ways, the most important thing is what the athlete prefers. Generally, these intervals suck. Same with longer intervals, but your athlete might have a preference that gets them better results. For example, for this athlete, 15-15s result in a low time at or near 90% of VO2 max, but 40-20s have a much higher time at or near 90% of VO2 max. To get an idea for yourself, you've got to try out different formats, review the data, and even if it's only heart rate, you should get a decent indication of which formats have a greater impact. Moving on to rest intensity, rest is low. 
There is evidence to show passive rest is the best here as it has increased the max time at effort, but rest intensity should be carefully considered and is more important than you think. Rest duration I will just make sure that they are completely rest. And this is anywhere from five to eight minutes or two to 10 minutes, depending on who you ask. For me, it's more of a feel thing or a muscle oxygenation monitor thing on the road, but I can see how well they have recovered after the ride and can make adjustments and recommendations based on that. Next up, set duration. It depends on recovery, of course, because that will lengthen it or shorten it, depending on how long they take with their recovery. Number of sets, one set. Pretty much this is set by the volume at or near VO2 max that you want to try and hit. With sprints, this is pretty low, so not really any need for more than one set. Between set recovery duration, similar to between effort recovery, the rest needs to be long enough for a full recovery, although this time they're only doing one set, so they'll be on their way after they finish. Between set recovery intensity, again, the goal here is full recovery, so if they're doing multiple sets, we basically just want them walking the bike between these sets. Total volume, looking for a time at or near VO2 max of greater than two minutes. Neuromuscular manipulations, overgeared for high torque and forcing the pedals when we are starting this. And this makes it much harder and will be changed in the overload week to reduce residual fatigue from the session. Work modality, want to do them on a hill. Normally you would do any sort of short sprints on the flat so you can maximize the chance that they're going to nail a max number, a true max number. But I want to do it on a similar gradient to the percentages that the target stage is on. And I want them in the hoods because that's the position that they'll most likely be responding to attacks in. Environmental conditions, ideally at the same altitude, as high as we can get basically, and nutritional status, locked and fully loaded with carbs. Finally, before we finish up here, it's important to know where to place these in a week. And I'll place these at the start of the day's training after a good warm-up and after a rest day to give them the best chance of hitting true max numbers. Wrapping up here, I'll go through this process with every session I prescribe until we hit the race. Well, I kind of do this with every session I ever give to an athlete. But like I said, with the right information, experience and time, a lot of this can be done in no time at all. Now that my program has been set, it's just a matter of getting the work done and seeing what this means for performance. But of course, the real test is the race itself. The science of fast. The science of fast, where it's 100% science and 100% fast or faster. You'll get faster. That's it. This time, using supplemental oxygen in recovery between repeated sprints. This study called the effects of continuous versus intermittent oxygen supplementation on repeat sprint cycling performance takes a trend seen in some team sports and tries it out in cycling. Well, it makes it a little bit more cycling specific by adding it into repeated sprint training. Using oxygen on sidelines of major US sports and even tennis is about creating a hypopoxic condition where cells, tissues, and organs are exposed to an excess supply of oxygen or higher than normal partial pressure of oxygen. To get this, you have to breathe an oxygen-enriched gas mixture oxygen supplementation. Companies such as Boost Oxygen and Oxygen Pulse offer handheld oxygen canisters that contain between 25 to 220 breaths of pure 100% oxygen. 
It's important to note that previously supplementary oxygen was banned by the World Anti-Doping Agency, but due to its potential performance-enhancing effect, evidence from the last 20 years has led to the reinstatement of oxygen supplementation within training for a competitive sport, resulting in its increasing application. Oxygen supplementation is shown to improve performance via the increased rate of phosphocreatine resynthesis, and it is increasingly becoming popular as an ergogenetic aid within a range of sporting populations. Oxygen has been administered at many different performance time points, before exercise, during training, and between exercise bouts, yet the exact timing of supplementary oxygen in relation to the greatest acute performance enhancement is not yet clear. So the primary aim of this research was to set out to see what would happen when the timing of the oxygen supplementation during recovery and or exercise on repeat sprint cycling performance. The authors hypothesized that the greatest increase in mean cycling sprint power output would occur during the continuous oxygen supplementation condition compared with partial oxygen supplementation or control conditions. Additionally, it was hypothesized that the continuous oxygen supplementation condition would elicit reductions in blood lactate concentration during each sprint for the same workload compared to the other conditions. The subjects of this study were not elite athletes, and the sample size was small. There were 10 healthy university students, 22.8 years old, plus or minus four or five years. They're described as recreational cyclists, but I'm not entirely sure what that means, except for the stated they had previous experience using an ergo and doing repeated sprint protocols. This study was a single-blind within participant design comprising of four counterbalanced assessments, which we'll get into in a moment. There's really no need for me to get into the details of how the oxygen was administered, except to note that it wasn't from one of the commercially available options. It was some hardcore, heavy-duty stuff, and we'll see later why this is important to know. Gas administration was manipulated during the sprint and recovery to make up four conditions, which each participant completed in four separate visits. And these conditions were, number one, oxygen supplementation in sprint and normoxia in recovery. Number two, normoxia in sprint and oxygen supplementation in recovery. Number three, oxygen supplementation in both sprint and recovery. And four, Finally, normoxia in both sprint and recovery. And the actual intervention was done on a watt bike and it consisted of a five-minute warm-up at a workload of approximately 200 watts. Then there was a five-minute passive recovery and then the business, 10 times 15 seconds with 45 seconds of static recovery between each sprint. The participants were instructed to stay seated to isolate leg power. Performance data used for analysis were... Number one, peak sprinting power. This is the highest watt achieved in each cycle. And number two, mean sprint power, the average watts produced during each 15-second cycle. Mean power was used to calculate performance decline in percentage, which is the best sprint minus the worst sprint divided by the best sprint times 100. Blood lactate concentration was also collected. It was collected pre-exercise with 20 microliter capillary sample was taken from the right earlobe as a baseline measure. And number two, subsequent samples were taken during the recovery period of each sprint repetition to look at accumulation of lactate over the 10 sprints. Now the results. Mean 
power. There was no significant difference for sprint performance, P equals 0.99, and no interaction effect was evident. Peak power, there was no difference in peak power, P equal 0.99, no interaction effect was evident. Percentage decline in performance, no significant percentage decline in performance, no significant effect for sprint performance, although there was a moderate to large effect size, no interaction effect was evident. And finally, lactate accumulation during sprint, oxygen supplementation in both sprint and recovery had an average lower lactate level than oxygen supplementation in sprint and normoxia in recovery condition, whilst oxygen supplementation in both sprint and recovery was also meaningfully lower, change greater than 10%, than both normoxia in sprint and oxygen supplementation in recovery and normoxia in both sprint and recovery conditions. That sounds pretty confusing, but here's how we clear all of it up. The aim of this research was to determine the effect of oxygen supplementation on sprint cycling performance with a specific focus on the timing of administration of supplementary oxygen. The current study found that administering supplementary oxygen to a sprint cycling athlete has no statistical significant benefits for mean and peak power output, but a large effect size was noted in the effect of conditional oxygen on reducing performance decline. Further, meaningful reduction in blood lactate concentration was evident in the oxygen supplementation in both sprint and recovery condition compared to the other conditions. Supplementary oxygen may be suited when administered during longer periods of work rest to allow for changes in internal equilibrium to occur before reverting to different gas contents. Now here's where we get to some some type of useful takeaway from this study. Performance decline followed a similar trend across each condition until sprint six, when oxygen supplementation in both sprint and recovery condition stabilizes. The exponential decline in mean cycling power is replicated across repeated sprint literature and previous research in oxygen supplementation. This lab found that supplementary oxygen has significant performance benefits during the final five sprints of a 10 sprint program. The performance enhancing effects of oxygen supplementation have been credited in part to the reduction in the accumulation of lactate in the blood. Despite this study only resulting in small changes in performance during the oxygen supplementation in both sprint and recovery condition, lactate also lowered in this full oxygen condition. It is evident that oxygen supplementation is effective at improving performance during cycling when administered over a longer duration. Oxygen supplementation should therefore be applied to training and or recovery periods that last over one minute in duration. But the authors do go on to say that more investigation is needed to identify the exact minimum time to elicit improvements in performance. And this all shakes out to be useful for a very specific workout session a repeated sprint session with 10 sprints without full recovery between each. This section is actually not so common unless you're a crit racer or maybe in a build period for cyclocross races where it's not about intensive but it's extensive and the ability to repeat these sprint, rest, sprint, rest, sprint, rest over and over again. It is tricky though because... There's another drawback. If you're wanting to try this, currently 
the canisters that are available to the public only last between 20 to 220 breaths and may not be optimum in a training program as each canister may only last less than 200 seconds during periods of exercise or recovery. So unless you have a tank and a mask to supply the entire session, then it's basically not worth it. So what do you think? Are you going to get that scuba tank out and give this a try? Probably not. And that's all I've got. If you are interested in more details on science and coaching, then become a member of the Semi-Pro Plus membership. Details and a link to purchase are in the show notes below. And with that, Ride Better, Faster is written, hosted, and scored by me, Damien Roos. Until next time, ride well.